Francis Disciple Live, the Bible in everyday life. And right here, he's back from a two-episode hiatus, one vacationing, exp exploring the northwestern regions of the U.S. And we can talk about that in a minute sure. and how that connects to the Bible and discipleship. Sure. And then going to a seminar for pastors here in Texas. Yep. And so welcome back, Dan. How are you doing? I'm I'm excited. I'm good. I'm a little tired. We we had a a heavy ministry morning here, um, serving foods to our neighbors here mm -hmm. in the community. And so um, ministry like that on a Monday following a Sunday, you just you know, that this is a time that I'm, I'm looking forward to because while I hope the conversation is edifying and fruitful for those who are listening, I just also am hoping to, to gain some energy from, from our conversation because right now it's kind of like zapped. So, yes. Anyway. And that's coming from the guy who went to lunch, came back. So that's yeah. kind of good. Yeah. So for our audience, uh, we want to just welcome you. If you have questions, we encourage you to please uh, go on the uh, comment section below the description block you will find a link for ask the pastors any questions you have we'll be more than happy to address and to do so biblically uh, but also if you listen to the the most recent teaching from the lord's day here at first baptist divine so for us that would be on the 26th right right we you delivered one message two times the early service late service and that'll be the meat and potatoes of our conversation. That'll be our springing board, if you will. Right. And then, so we want to encourage you, our audience, whether you're watching or listening, uh, just to engage with that in, that in that manner. And if you have any other questions as well, uh, let us know. We'd love to just have a conversation with you on the other side of the camera or on the other side of your smart device or radio. Yep. Any, any thoughts before we begin? I don't have thoughts. I don't get paid to think. I just... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere in the world, who, who if there's a liberal think hearing this, they're gonna say, "Yeah, that's right. They're conservative." So, yep, <laughs> that's what they they might think in in a quick quip. So, yesterday we you lead us into Colossians chapter two. We finally fi yeah. finished the beginning of the letter by Paul to the to the church in Colossae, and now you're leading us into a message that's entitled "Hope in Action." Right. So. Why don't you um, walk us through the text? If you want to, you can read it, whatever you think it's fitting for this, mm -hmm. and, tell, and then springboard from there in whichever direction the Lord may be leading you. So, entering into chapter 2, it's, it's actually a continuation of thought from the end of chapter 1. Um, Paul has spent the better part of the, the first chapter of Colossians um, doing what would be customary amongst uh, the time and age in which he writes in extending salutation and hospitality for those who are receiving his letter. And then he lays out very quickly the matter of who is Jesus Christ, whom, uh, or it's, and it's in this uh, first chapter that we as Christians derive much of a doctrine of Jesus Christ or a Christology. Uh, Paul informs us our, our Christology, our understanding of the person and uh, deity of Jesus Christ from the first chapter of Colossians. He's doing this because he is aware that the Colossians are 
dealing with some people who are starting to come around church and are trying to lead them away from a understanding of genuine Christian expression. Um, particularly for the Colossians, it's a group that uh, we would call Judaizers who are telling them, hey, it's great, you're, you're, you're baby Jews, why don't you come the whole way and come get circumcised and forget that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, we're still waiting, but you're, you're, you're heading in the right direction would be what these Judaizers are telling them. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is the expected Messiah. This is who God in human form is. That's what he's doing in chapter 1. And um, he works through that. And coming into chapter 2, he's saying, by the way, carrying this message, it's not fun. Um, in fact, it's been something that's caused him great personal harm. Uh, but in the course of that, it's caused him to rejoice. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, coming into, into the second chapter, the, the text that we undertook uh, yesterday as we came together as a congregation to study God's Word, uh, is, is Paul laying this out there, that there's a reason for suffering, there's a reason for struggle in the course of proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And that's for the edification, for the building up of the church, for the encouragement of uh, brothers and sisters, for knitting them together in love. Um, and so the, the emphasis there is that as we pour into one another, as we sacrifice for others, um, it caught our faithfulness in living that life out um, winds up encouraging the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters who may be on the ropes, so to say, right? Um, in their faith. And so that's what Paul's getting to, is to say, you know, this life's never been easy. Uh, it's never promised to be easy in following Jesus. But he counts this, this idea of, not idea, he counts this very personal and very real suffering that he's been subjected to since he's encountered Jesus to be a joy. Um, all for the sake of making Christ fully known. Okay. So anyway, that's where I'll volley it back to you. No, that's good. And so I, I, that's a wonderful summary so far. I really like yesterday, you, if I'm not mistaken, part of the introduction and in getting us into this text as a congregation was the type of qualifications that you would want from a pastor or a minister and how that can, uh, that would also then, who would want to do this type of work? Because you bring us into this tension of there's great joy in serving the living God because we have seen him as we have read in John 14 all the way through 17. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then how that also, because of the way the world is, tent is tent tainted by sin, that there is a real sense of suffering. And yet the world cannot reconcile joy and suffering. How do we as Christians reconcile joy and suffering for the sake of the gospel? Well, Joy is a product of suffering. Okay. That's how you begin to reconcile that. Um, and so what I, why I say that, or why I um, 
ask you to, to think about it in that order is that when we are suffering for the sake of the gospel, um, and what I want to be careful of is not trying to be prescriptive on what suffering is right now. Sure. Um, but when we are suffering for the sake of the gospel, what, what that means very practically is that we have followed the call of Jesus upon our lives to pick up our crosses and follow him. So we are dying to ourselves. Um, we're no longer living our lives for our own sake or for our own benefit or as if we are still the, the king or queen of our, of our lives. Um, but we have um, surrendered to Christ. He is king um, for, within us. He reigns over us. And he's caused us to serve others. And in the course of that, that selflessness that we embody because Christ was so selfless so as to go to a cross to abandon uh, heaven itself, um, we're going to suffer. Right. He suffered for that. Sure. Um, and yet in that suffering that we are like a John the Baptist, so to say, that it's not a sense of suffering and, you know, we have... You know, sad, mopey faces, and we're saying, "Woe is me." We want empathy. Um, we're suffering in a in a way that um, personifies or embodies even the the sentiment of John the Baptist, where we are but a finger pointing in the wilderness. Um, there may be those who were coming to us as the the physical embodiment of Christ, and they they see Christ in Carlos or in Dan or whomever is listening, but we're pointing to the Christ who has saved and redeemed and empowered and sent us. And so when others come to know Christ through our suffering, through our struggle, right. the, the suffering and struggle, it just falls to the wayside or to the background because the joy of seeing others see Christ come to know him, that outweighs any of the, the costs that we might we might know in that way. Okay. So the follow-up question to that is, we understand that then, based on what you're explaining to us, it's, it's part and parcel. If we suffer for Christ, we see the joy in seeing that, one, we're testifying to Christ, and two, we are elements at work well, in the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, and I, I would be very careful to say we would hope to see so that we would have joy. That's not right. promised. Right. Suffering is promised. Right. The, that sense of joy in relationship to suffering is not. That is a, a dispensation of God's grace. If we, if we get to see the fruitfulness of our suffering, that's not guaranteed. But if we are, right. there is joy in that. Anyway, right, and, and so and what I'm referring to is not not to see the result of the suffering, like say for example Polycarp, who was discipled by John, uh, the beloved disciple. He didn't. He would count it joy if he were able to see that what he stood for and died for, torn to shreds and then being bo uh, born, uh, being burned, um, that the church spread out not just into Europe but throughout the world, and that the name of Christ is proclaimed everywhere. Um, as far as the, the Bible is being carried through, with through missionary work. 
but I'm referring to the, the, the joy in itself is a fruit of us understanding that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Right. And so with that in hand, how do we then encourage churches in, in North America, in the West, to embrace suffering and not to look for cheap grace? Hmm. By the way, in case our audience is not aware, we've been reading along with a study being offered here at the church that focuses on uh, the cost of discipleship, a book that was written by the modern marker um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who opposed uh, Adolf Hitler during World War II. So, talking about cheap grace as uh, Bonhoeffer describes it, um, cheap grace would be, in a sense, assuming that, assuming God's forgiveness, right? And so, uh, assuming that if we if we've done a thing, um, that we are recipients of God's grace and that there is actually no cost uh, as a consequence in our lives. So um, for Bonhoeffer, just to give a quick history lesson, that would have looked like the assumption that because I was German, that I was Lutheran, and therefore by my baptism in the Lutheran church, I'm a recipient of God's grace, yet I could be a member of the Nazi Socialist Party and I could eradicate Jews from the existence of this earth, but I'm under God's grace because I'm a member of the New Covenant by my baptism. For us, um, we might say, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents have been members of a Baptist church. Um, in fact, my granddad was a deacon in the church. Or the pastor. Or the pastor. And so, and I'm American, so I'm Christian. Um, or that, you know, I prayed a prayer. Walk down the aisle. I walked down an aisle. Yeah. Um, the the sense, uh, and, and the the two are related in this way. It's a it's in a with a sense of performance that by performance, either through that now century old. I mean, Lutherans still practice this, but I mean, in Bonhoeffer's uh, context, we're almost at a century since he wrote this book, or we might be actually. Um, the, the the sense that by the performance of a baptism you receive grace, or by in a Protestant evangelical expression, by the performance of walking an aisle or praying a prayer that we've received this grace, so that we can go on living like the devil. Hmm. Um, you know, so this, as long as I, as long as I confess, as long as I ask for forgiveness, I receive God's grace once more. Um, so that's, that's in the ballpark of cheap grace, right? It's, it's not grace, grace that is free, grace that transforms me. Um, in fact, Paul writes in, the, in Romans chapter 6, should I go on sinning that grace may abound. By no means. By no means. Um, if you're listening to us right now, I want you to know that there is no sin for which God's grace cannot cover, nor no sin that God's grace cannot forgive. But the idea that you can continue to live a life in rebellion to Christ 
and expect his grace, my friend, those two things don't add up. Right. Right. So that's cheap grace. I just want to make sure we understood that and kind of unpack that. There may be other questions you have. Feel free to ask those in the the form we have for you to submit those or uh, comments on whatever way you're listening to us. Um, and so you asked the so I, I spent time on cheap grace because that's what I clung on to. But you asked that in the context of the Western Church, yeah. American Christianity. Okay. How do we how do we encourage people to step away from a cheap grace uh-huh. and into the embracing of the church's call to suffer? Yeah. So um, not because we seek it, but as a result of the truth being proclaimed. Yeah. So. And there's so many different things that come to my mind right now. Um, Pick one. You just so starting starting from what I just described that the you know should I go on sinning that grace may abound, you know you 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 have to, I mean this is going to sound like coffee cup Christianity, but you got to check your heart right um, to, to start with, and and check your heart in the sense that um, why. Reflect upon your life and your actions and ask yourself, am I assuming God's forgiveness? Mm. Um, um, and, and, and it's not about performance, but you've got to ask yourself, from when you first think you encountered Jesus, um, when you first had this great worship experience, and um, maybe it was at a camp as a kid, and it was maybe more like the nachos at lunch than anything, the 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 thing about it is you to presume upon the king and his grace would be a very dangerous thing to do you got to check your heart and ask where is transformation in mm. my life you know it, if you have met the giver of hope let me say it this way. When heaven touches earth, it is earth that changes. Right. So if you've encountered the heavenly, meaning you've been met by the risen Jesus Christ, you're going to change. Right. Um, in many respects, it's a 180 from the way you were going. Mm-hmm. But if that if that is not true for you, check your heart. Um, so in that, I'm thinking about what it means to be faithful to the gospel. I th- uh, and I'm thinking about, you You talked about my, my recent trip. Maybe this is where you were thinking, or maybe this is just where I'm going to drop that. Um, you know, I was in, in the Pacific Northwest um, in a place where where I stayed, um, within a 70-mile radius of where I, I, I lodged, there was not a conservative evangelical Christian church in that entire radius. Um, one of the friends that we traveled with also mentioned to me, and I haven't fact-checked this, so you know, someone could comment and say this is absolutely wrong. I'm just trusting what my friend said. Um, he said in that region where we were that there were more billionaires per capita in the United States or than, than compared to the rest of the United States. So right. in that region, more rich folk than any other place in the in the U.S., and I would have to guess potentially the world, right? Yeah. Most of the wealth is within this region of the world. Um, and 
it's this sense that um, you know Jesus declared of himself that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to the Father except through him. Um, we've got to ask ourselves, are we on the Jesus way or not? Um, he declared of himself first that he is the way, the means by which we live life. Um, and he is the narrow gate by which we enter. Um, and I think about those that I encountered when I was there who were maybe living a life. Here's a word for you to, to, to Google. Living a life that would be influenced by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, mm. um, who would be someone who would have um, advocated for the pursuit of pleasure and lavishness in life. That you have reached, a, this is not an Epicurean philosophy or a term, but it, I think this just communicates, you would have reached a state of nirvana uh, or a state of heavenly expression within life if you are not one who goes without. That you have, so you have everything that you might imagine. Um, you, every, every need, every want, every pleasure is afforded to you. Hmm. Um, and I, I think about how while there are more potentially more billionaires per capita where I visited, and I realized while that Epicurean mindset may be true amongst those of where I visited, I don't think that there it's exclusively there. I think it's in the streets of Divine Texas. Sure. Uh, now, there's significant disparity in wealth between Divine and where I was. Um, a whole lot of disparity of wealth. I don't know any billionaires in Divine, Texas. Um, and, but you haven't showed me your, your bank statements. So anyway. <laughs> um, but um, the uh, even at that, I th I, the Epicurean pursuit, I think, is a way in which many people seek to live life. And the call of the disciple of Jesus Christ, well, let me, let me come back to that for a second. When you're living that life, you're doing so because you're seeking to honor yourself, mm. right? Okay. And so the call of the disciple of Jesus Christ would be to live a life in recognition that your life was never your own. Your life is the king's life to use as he sees fit. And so as a consequence of that, you're not really concerned with pleasures and lavishness. Um, and it's not to say that there are not things that you don't enjoy in life as a Christian, right? Sure. Um, it's not to say that it is absent anything that would be richness or beauty or things like that. But your aim is never to satisfy yourself. Sure. And really your aim is not so much to satisfy the king in the sense that you're trying to earn his pleasure or his, his favor. Um, but you're doing so because your life is lived out of the grace that he has shown you. And so it's an expression of your thanksgiving for what he has done for you. That because he has done the ultimate in going to a cross, mm. you can see yourself willing to do the same for him.
which connects very nicely to this portion of scripture. It's chap uh, chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that was one of the main points that you drove to the congregation during the later sermon, is that it's not that there's something greater than, it's Christ himself is the treasure. So I'm thinking about um, a book that I read that is written by David Paul Tripp. Um, if you Google him, you will find that he is a, a, a pastor, a, uh, a theologian, a, a devotional writer, and a guy that has a really awesome mustache. Um, that he does. And I, I wrote a, a, I, he wrote a book that I read uh, that is, um, the, the main title is A Dangerous Calling. Um, and it's, it's a book that is written for those who are serving in vocational ministry. Mm. Uh, so, so for pastors. Um, and uh, there was a chapter there that I think is a, a, an aspect of the danger of a calling to ministry that, uh, that is certainly true for pastors, but I think is um, also true for, for those who are not serving as pastors in churches, who are, who are genuinely in Christ. I think the concern is the same. Um, and I think that this, what, uh, what Tripp was writing about in that chapter uh, has a lot to do with the, the approach to a, a better sense for how we should be um, mining the depths of the treasure uh, who is, uh, of the mystery of God who is Jesus Christ. And that is the return to a healthy fear of God. Mm. A healthy, a healthy understanding of what it means for God to be holy. Um, the trip was came from the position in his book that because guys like me and you do ministry, um, you know, do Lord's Supper, do preaching, do baptism that by the, the frequency of exercising or dispensing those um, ministry functions, that we lose a sense of the holiness of those moments. Um, and while that's certainly a danger for, for pastors, I think it's also true for any Christian. Right. Um, I mean, I, just being confessional, I, I don't know... I can't recall the last time I spoke about the holiness of God and the fear that that ought to uh, instill or elicit. Um, I mean, just think about that, right? Sure. God alone is the only one who is holy. Now, we refer to things as holy because they have been brought into Christ and as a, as a consequence of that, he sanctifies them. He gives to them a sense of his holiness, right? Uh, Peter talks about how those who are in Christ are a holy people, a holy nation. Right. Uh, they're, they're not holy unto themselves. Right. They're holy because of who has made them holy. Right. Um, and I, I, I do not believe that we can begin to appreciate the treasure that is Jesus Christ without a fear of God and His holiness again. Which kind of, it's, given what's been happening in, 
Asbury, Kentucky, what's been happening in other college campuses, and it's it's it started a debate, even within Christian circles, whether this is true revival or not. That's not, that's not even a conversation right now. But one of the things that prompted in my memory is going back to historical theology and listening to the teaching of how the Great Revival in the United States back in the 1700s started. It was because of Jonathan Edwards' sermon that was not delivered with great passion, uh, but rather in a very quiet and even-paced delivery, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And talking about the fact that it, His grace was, if I, if I recall correctly, um, like the thread of a spider hanging over a, a raging fire. And that is, it, that, that, that is the grace of God. It, it's something that is, it has substance, but it, it's, it, it also, it becomes more hefty. It becomes more uh, valuable, if you will, against the knowledge of the totality of God, not just the loving, kind, merciful side, but also the fact that He has holy wrath, not, not quite like our anger, but this quality of, because he, when He's offended, he, he has every right to just call upon all your chips and say, you're done. Um, Saul and Jonathan being a great example in the Old Testament, Ananias and Sapphira being examples in the, in the New. Sure. Um, and we've probably said it here in this setting, but it's, it's worth saying again because um, yesterday's message and the next two, and then we'll wrap up our time in Colossians and we'll return to our studies in Luke, I mean, they're, they're fully dependent upon what Paul's been doing rhetorically beginning from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It's fully dependent upon the Christ that is described, in, that is captured in this scripture. Um, and I say that to say because you're talking about um, the experiences for those who have tried to um, pretend that God is not holy, right? Right. Um, I, at times, there's a perspective amongst Christians that they prefer the God of the New Testament, if you will, um, and in because there's a an expression of love and grace and mercy that they, that they do not find in the Old Testament. And why I point back to the the hymn of Christ that Paul writes in Colossians chapter one is to bring to our remembrance that Jesus has existed always. Right. Jesus was there at creation. Right. All things were spoken into existence by him and through him and for him. Right. He was there at Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Um, there's a scholarship that says that every time that we see the, uh, the messengers of God or even as God met with Abraham before he went to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy them. There's a strain of theology that says that that was Christ meeting with Abraham, and then Abraham saying, "Do not, do not, do not, do not chastise me, if you will, but will you not spare the city for a hundred, for fifty, for ten, for one?" And the reply is, "Even if 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 I find one righteous, then I'll spare the city." 
but there's none righteous. <laughs> and, that, and again, that gets my mind all thinking, well, that's Romans now. Uh, the whole connection of systematic theology. But anyway, I digress. So it's kind of it's interesting to see that we, in our humanity, we want to draw lines that says this is acceptable, this is good, and this is just something we don't talk about. Right. And so it's also comforting to know that the Bible compels us to step away from that and simply appreciate the fact that one, God is holy, and in His holiness, He has shown us His mercy and grace by consuming all the wrath onto Himself through the Son. Yes. And so. Yeah. So that's why I start with holiness, right? Because if we understood, if we had a, a finger's grip onto what it means for God to be holy, I don't pretend to be uh, somebody that has this Mar this uh, market cornered, you know, of understanding. Um, but if we understood what it meant for God to be holy, mm -hmm. um, and for for God not to destroy creation in the garden in response to the fall, mm. um, and to to can to permit the continuation of creation and life, um, and the grace therein. Um, man alive you know I think we assume too much mm. what I mean by that is we we love cheap grace yeah it's comforting it's to quote the movie the what is it the speak of me it's a fluffy it's a fluffy yeah I have to go back and watch that yeah okay so do you have any closing thoughts any anything any remarks I don't think I do. Okay. Well, thank you. It's it's wonderful to have you back and to have this discussion about the latest message. And I'm really excited to get back to Luke um, as we continue to see how the gospel uh, glorifies and just makes much of Christ. And I really enjoy, so far, the um, the bigger picture that Paul presents to the Colossians just on who Jesus is and how that affects us. So I want to thank you for leading us through that. Yeah. I have a feeling the congregation, much like reading through the Bible last year together, those that did, if they're paying attention, they won't, they won't be the same after this. Right. And so that's the hope anyway. Right. All right. Well, it's your honor. You can dismiss us. See you all, everybody. Take care. See you next week.